Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we bring you an update on the ground from Puerto Rico. We speak to Eli Jacobs Fantuzzi from Defend PR. We also give you a special update, seeing how this is Lead Prevention Month. We talk about the important risks and work being done to address the impact of lead poisoning, especially in preventing lead poisoning of children. And last but definitely not least, we feature the musica of Diana Gameros. She shares with us her latest album, Arrullo. We feature select tracks. It's a special premiere of some of these songs, and we get an in-studio performance. All this and much more. Stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and on today's program, we're really lucky to have another report back from La Isla. We have Eli Jacobs Fantuzzi, who is a longtime filmmaker, community worker, culture worker, who has been doing big things with Defend Puerto Rico, and we're so lucky to have him on the line with us. He is in Puerto Rico right now. Muchísimas gracias, Eli. Thank you so much. So, Eli, you have been doing things that are a little different. I'd love to hear what you've been seeing and what you've been experiencing. So let's first off start off there. And then I'm just so excited. I can't wait to hear about all the beautiful culture work you've been doing on the island because we don't get to hear about that so often. You know, beauty, we just are hearing about destruction. So um, let's start off. You're on the island. This is actually, I think, the second or third trip you've taken. I don't know. You've taken a couple trips since the hurricane, right? Um, yeah, this is my second trip. Second trip. So tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing and all we get here in news reports and not very many at that even. It's starting to fall off the radar. Puerto Rico is not maintaining its front page for the huge crisis that it is. So tell us for folks that have no idea, what is it like um, where you've been and what you've seen? Well, first of all, I'm right here in La Pella, which is a community right on the side of Viejo San Juan. And tonight we're doing Cinema Solar. So we have a bunch of kids right here. I'm looking at them in the complete dark because there's no electricity. And we've mounted a solar generator with the projection of a film. So the kids are smiling, gave out popcorn and juices. So that's one of the projects that we're doing with Coco de Oro. And it's so heart-fulfilling. I've seen so much destruction and had a hard time going to sleep at night full of tears. Uh, this project, Cinema Solar, has really been been the uplifting part of my trip here. So you really are getting to connect with young people. What are those young people saying? Because I've actually seen some of your beautiful photography around this. So what are some of the main issues that the young people, very young people, first of all, gives to people a taste? Normally we say young people, we're thinking people under 40, and young people that you're working with, it's some real little ones. So tell us about what their concerns are since the hurricane. So. If you could check out the the recent video that just came out today on DFM Puerto Rico on Facebook, you'll see that the the kids are worried about being able to go back to school and learning. You know, that's a big part of their lives. That's where their friends are, and and they know it's important for their future. And what happened in Jordan Torres, which is a housing project, they closed down the school there. And so the family was out, community was out, saying that they need that school to open up. Everything was okayed for the school to open, and then when they showed up the next day, they were told that it was closed down. So we don't know um, what the situation is. We know that this isn't something new, that ever since the austerity measures and the fiscal control board, they've been closing schools and hospitals. So this is just adding to the devastation that already has hit the island. We're speaking to Eli Jacobs Fantuzzi. He is with Defend Puerto Rico, and he's been documenting what's happening on the ground. He's been on the ground. This is his second trip. So you've mentioned that schools are a big concern. And from what I hear and our our report back last week on the show really talked about the differences depending on where you are at on the island, about what the main needs and concerns are. Uh, what for you are you seeing in terms of we're now a month out, is it? Um, what are you seeing in terms of shifts and um, what do you see as most urgent? So it, we're a month out and you still see all the dead trees on the side of the road. You see the phone pulls down, blocking some of the roads. And then when you leave out of San Juan, San Juan is trying to pretend like everything's normal. So we were in a, in a supermarket the other day and the generous went out and it's just pitch dark in the supermarket and they had to rush everybody out. So, but, you know, it's basically functioning, but when you go out to the countryside, it's a different story. So we went out to Utuado, 
And the sad part is is that another aguacero or like these big rainstorms come and the work that they did clearing the roads or fixing stuff, fixing their roofs, all gets undone with the big rainstorms that come again. So more mud falls in the middle of the street, more water damage happens to their home. So we're seeing this happen over and over again. Again, you said it's been over a month, 30 days out, and FEMA hasn't been there doing their job. We know that people pay for FEMA. That's not something that's free. It's not a handout. It comes from people's taxes, and they're not here doing their job. So as the Puerto Rican diaspora, we're doing what we can. And it's great to see us, you know, being able to put tents up and bringing able to bring food. But really, we need some infrastructure. We need real money and machines to get the kind of help here that needs to happen. Eli Jacob Fantuzzi, so you have been with Defend Puerto Rico, and part of what we've talked to you about on the show, the mission of what the work you're doing through this project is, is to tell the stories of resistance, to tell the stories of resilience. So uh, from what we hear, there's been a lot of that since the hurricane. So tell us some things that you've seen and some things you've experienced in terms of how people are either imagining the rebuild happening in a different way or, or how they're supporting their neighbors and loved ones. I see it all over, and it's one of the most heartwarming parts of this is that the Puerto Rican community, the Puerto Rican people are coming together. The neighbors are helping out one another. Recently, we've been up to, it's called Paloma Bajo in, in a part of Puerto Rico called Gomerillo. It's a mountainside. And when we went up there, um, one of the community leaders introduced us to her little nephew, and then the nephew jumped in the car with us and took us through the neighborhood and started to like show us some of the the people that were hardest hit. He brought us up to uh, a woman who has a daughter that's bedridden, so she couldn't leave. So imagine bathing her, and, and they don't have any electricity or water. Luckily, they had a generator from like a neighbor donated to them, and um, so people stepping up. The 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 woman whose house at the the front of the community cooks food for everybody. So you'll see like impromptu community kitchens. When we were there working, we also did a movie night there. So all the kids and the family, the community came out. Some of the wives brought coffee. Some of the husbands were working on the, the rooftops, putting up the tarps with tarps with us. It's great to see. They've always told us that, you know, if if we were left to ourselves, we would die, that it would be madness, that it would, you know, that we would fall apart. And it's completely not true. What we've shown in this face of adversity and really the just being left to fend for ourselves is people coming together, working together to uplift the community and to uplift the island. Eli, some of the images you've been taking, I mean, they're things that hopefully later, you know, people will learn about in school and they'll be, you know, featured in different kinds of history classes where people will say, this is the way young people came together. For example, we know during fascism in Spain that a lot of people from the U.S. just felt like they couldn't take what they were seeing and they went, you know, wh whether it was to fight or whether it was to provide support if they were in the healthcare profession or whatever they could do. You've connected with so many people that have been drawn and said, I know I have to give what I can to the island. So tell us a little bit about some of the different things that you've seen, some of the different projects, and also how people listening, they may feel like this feels too big. How can they be part of this reimagining how Puerto Rico is and also the rebuild that's necessary? Thank you. You said it best, totally. And I was really inspired by my mom's generation with Vietnam. A lot of people told me that that war stopped because of the images and the information that was coming out of Vietnam, the media that was coming out. And so I'm hoping to do something similar here in Puerto Rico is to uplift the voices, amplify the voices saying, hey, we need help and this kind of help because the government has failed and has not given us that help. So that's part of what the Defend Puerto Rico project is about, is to, to show the reality here on the ground. I think like to reimagine what we want we need to think big picture, and we need to work together. I know the Madia Fund has raised over $2 million, which has been great, and they're, they're really pointing to community organizations on the ground doing the work, so keep supporting them. The Defend Puerto Rico Fund, I'm here. I have Adrian coming again. It's his second trip. He's donating to folks on the ground. So if you don't know people on the ground, please keep contributing to those donations. The next phase for Defend Puerto Rico, what we want to do is, rather than just giving to a fund, 
We want to point out particular community projects that are happening and do a video around it, tell the story so that people could donate particularly to that direct need and then move to the next one. So have a bunch of different, it could be a water tank or a roof, tell the story, get the money to the people that need it, and keep moving around the island. So that's really what we're envisioning for the next phase of Defend Puerto Rico. Eli, I heard from Majo Montijo, a beautiful singer here based in the Bay, Puerto Rican as well, Boricua. She said that when she was raising funds to send to her island, she someone came up to her and gave her all these seeds. And they said, you know, this is for, for the new Puerto Rico, hopefully one that is less dependent on gas and that is more solar and that has plants and has more agriculture, since we know that agriculture has been something that, you know, has not been a big part of the island because of its colonial past. So when you're talking to people, trying to imagine, I know it's survival mode, but what are they imagining and talking about? So it's really polar. I think because of the emergency, people that try to eat healthy and, and there aren't a lot of fruits and vegetables, you'll see them going into the big stores that they don't like supporting because, like you said, it's an emergency situation. A lot of bottled water. That, I mean, these companies must have made millions off of this disaster here on the island, and you don't see them giving back whatsoever. But on the flip side to that, you do see people saying this is an opportunity for Puerto Rico to build it itself anew. A lot of the people that are working in the agriculture asking for non-GMO seed. So yesterday we got to travel to a farm and they were completely devastated by the Hurricane Maria, but they're trying to build it back. So what you see is like people starting almost with zero. And what the guy said, rather than complain that he lost everything, he said, when we start anew, I'm taking all the knowledge, all those mistakes that I did on that first round, and this time we won't make those same mistakes again. The Puerto Rican spirit is so strong that you, you see people saying, this isn't going to stop us. We're going to continue, and we're going to do it better than it was done before. Eli, thank you so, so much for taking time out to chat with us. You are doing important work, not only documenting what's happening, but also offering opportunities for people to take a moment to not just think about the destruction and, you know, what's happening when they're getting paid and lack of water and all the things that are happening, but to just be with each other and enjoy things like film. So you've told us some ways donating money, but as we know, this problem in Puerto Rico, the issue is just magnified because of its colonial relationship with the U.S. Tell us about how people can work to address that. What, what should they do? So if you go to defendpr.com backslash action, we have a call to action. We have a list of demands. One of them is, of course, release the aid. You people listening to this program and people around the world have donated goods and items that are sitting at the port right now that are not getting released. So we're asking people to call their senators, call their congressmen, and it makes it really easy if you go to the website, thefempr.com, to just type in your zip code and it'll tell you who to email, who to get in touch with. We're also having a call to repeal the Jones Act. We know that it's been putting our country behind for so long. They put taxes and taxes and taxes. Every ship that comes in has to stop in the United States first. We need that done away with. Of course, we want to cancel the debt. It's an illegal debt made by Wall Street vultures, and we want a complete cancelization of that debt. And we're also asking for an extension of the FEMA deadline. They're giving people 60 days to apply for FEMA that don't even have electricity and definitely not Wi-Fi, so we need that extended. Go to defendpr.com backslash action and take action with us. Let your voice be heard. Muchísimas gracias, Eli, for all that you're doing on the island and also for letting us know how we can do what we can to support this important work. Thank you. Thank you, Las Asa Chronicles. Love you, Bay Area. You guys really stood up to help the island when it's in need. Please don't stop now. Para 
fantasía Pero no me puedo ahogar Si estás en mi realidad No hay futuro, no hay pasado Porque ahora estás a mi lado to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. On today's program, we're going to tackle some of the issues around lead poisoning, lead all around us, unfortunately. I have in the studio with us Daniel Santiago Madrigal. He is with the California Environmental Health Tracking Program, and he is a health educator. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming into the studio to chat with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So this is a huge issue, and unfortunately, it's something we don't hear much about. So why don't you just start off by talking to us a little bit about what are the important things people should know about lead poisoning? Sure, yeah. It's something that we've heard a lot more about in the last couple of years because of uh, what happened in Flint. And when the, the water systems got switched, the, the water wasn't taken care of, and lead came out into the pipes and doubled the rates of kids with high levels of lead. And then from there, we, we found out that there's reporting from Reuters that found that, that there's 3,000 other communities in the United States that have rates of kids with high levels of lead that were even higher, even one here in Fruitvale. So it's been kind of capturing a lot of attention. And it, it's been something that's been going on for a really long time. So the, the big thing with lead is that it is a, a neurotoxin, so it, it hurts the, the kid's developing brain. And there's all kinds of studies that, that show that there's poor outcomes for kids that have lead in their bodies. And we know that not even any level of uh, lead is, is safe. And we, we, so like as the kids grow up, the studies show that they perform poor on all kinds of kind of tests that show the, the developing brain. So like reading comprehension, IQ scores, other test scores, kids that have high lead levels, they're more likely to be involved with the criminal justice system. 
And there's, there's just a lot of examples that, that show that it, it harms the developing brain. And the other thing is that just lead is, is everywhere. Lead was used for a really long time in, in paint and in gasoline, and we're still dealing with like the legacy contamination. So a lot of old houses, um, especially ones that were built before 1978, have lead in, in the walls, in the paint. And that paint can, the lead can uh, flake off and come into the dust. And then the kid that is uh, crawling around, they'll, they'll, they'll put their hands in their mouth and they'll be exposed that way. Or kids who are playing outside in the soil, um, sometimes the paint comes off the, the house and into the soil. And a kid who's playing outside, same, same situation, they put their hands in their mouths and then they get exposed that way. And one of the other, the big issues is that the, the lead impact is, is not always obvious. It's, um, it can be subtle over time. And you see that there's like, the kids will have like lower IQ scores. So by the time you kind of have that impact, it, it's already too late. It's something that's happened when, when the kid was younger. I'm speaking to Daniel Santiago Madrigal. He works on lead. He's a health educator. So you're talking to us about some of the many, many impacts that this can have on a child's development in many areas. So we know that lead is not equal in terms of impact and just the amount of exposure kids are facing. Tell us a little bit more about what you've seen in your research around who's being impacted by this. So we we know that in the United States, overall, it's it's black children and children from low-income families who have higher uh, rates of um, high levels of blood lead levels, and that's something that we've seen for a really long time, for over 40 years. Every time they do these these studies, they they find that the the same trends. And what happens is that a lot of these families just live in older houses that are that are more likely to be deteriorating, where there's more more lead, and so that that results bears out. Um, but something in California that we see is that eighty percent of the cases of of kids with high lead levels are Latino children, even though uh, Latino children make up fifty percent of of the the kid population. So right now you're in a space where the California Environmental Health Tracking Program, um, along with other folks that are very concerned about lead, are doing what they can to get the word out. So there are probably people listening that are thinking, what can I do? How do I know if my child's been exposed to lead? Yeah, so um, one, of the, one of the only ways to find out whether your uh, kid has been exposed to lead is to, to get them tested at their first year and second year well child visits. And that is, is something that you can do in, in, when you talk to your medical provider, your pediatrician, is to ask them for a lead test. And one thing that we see in California and other Western states is that pediatricians are, are less likely to, to give the, the kids these lead tests. So that's something that our, our program did a report on, on what we called hidden lead and finding that we're only finding four out of every 10 kids who have these high lead levels. So meaning that there's a lot more testing that we need to be doing. So that's kind of one thing to, to, to like find, find the, the kids who have um, the high lead levels. So definitely identifying children who have high lead levels is a, is a huge priority. So what happens once children are identified that maybe they do have too much lead in their system? So the, the state of California has a, a system in place that gives children who meet certain criteria, like so their, their blood lead levels have to be high enough to, to get uh, extra support and services. So they'll get a public health nurse and... And they'll also get an, an environmental assessment, so people will come into their house to find the sources of lead if they're if they kind of exceed certain levels. And they, these uh, health professionals can give the families the kind of support and services they need to identify the the sources of lead that might have led to that high level in the kid. And so, just to kind of take a step back, that means that we're we're waiting for the kid to be exposed to give any support and services. Um, basically treating children as like these these lead monitors rather than proactively getting out there and, and preventing the exposure. But the problem is that this exposure is everywhere, and um, there's, a, there's a lot more that needs to happen to actually end childhood lead poisoning. When we're thinking about actually preventing lead poisoning before children are diagnosed with lead in their system, what can be done to make it so less 
children are exposed. Right. There's there's a lot of programs out there that, um, especially in the northeast of the United States, they've been grappling with these issues for a while. So programs that do more childhood-led testing are really effective at kind of bringing more awareness to the issue and identifying more cases and more sources of where kids are, are being exposed. Also, some of the one of the innovative programs that uh, Oakland is considering right now is um, a proactive rental inspection program. So that would mean that before a kid moved into a rental unit, that they that it would have to be kind of certified lead-free. And right now, I think they're considering a, a pilot program to to do that. That I believe that's in still in the development stage. So tell us, what can parents do? I'm sure there are a lot of parents that are hoping to find ways to try to to limit the amount of lead that they're exposed to, what can they do? Sure. Um, one of the, the first things you can do is uh, find out the, the age of the, the, the building that you live in. And if it's built before 1978, there's uh, a good chance that it, there's lead in, in the paint. And one thing that you can do to just immediately is um, make sure that your kids' hands are always washed so that the, that the lead is removed from, from, from that source. And then also just to keep the countertops clean, the, the windowsills clean, wet mop the floors, and just remove that that lead. The the problem with lead is that it, it's it's invisible and it just kind of like comes into the house. And um, so that's one way to kind of keep the the home clean. Daniel Santiago Madrigal, there are probably a lot of people listening that um, maybe heard about lead being an issue, but it's not really on the top of their list of concerns when they're thinking about young kids. So tell us a little bit about what, what should people understand about lead poisoning? Right, and this is kind of one of the big problems is that because lead was taken out of the paint in the 70s and gasoline in the, the 80s, we, and then lead levels in, in humans just went down quite a bit, like that, oh, this, this issue is done, we're, we're, we're finished with it. But every year, thousands of kids across the United States, across California, are lead poisoned and that affects the way that they kind of live, grow, and dream, and all these other things. And, um, you know, like that's going to change their life outcomes in terms of who they become, and, and it'll create more barriers and challenges to their lives, and basically starting them off on the wrong foot, like when they're like super young. So just that there needs to be more work done to, to get the lead out of all these places where kids get exposed. So where can people go to find out more about childhood lead poisoning? Sure. So the state uh, Department of Public Health has a website, the Childhood Lead Poisoning Prevention Program, that has a lot of resources for for families and healthcare providers just to learn about the issues a little bit better, and then how to how to prevent exposure to kids. So, what should parents do that are concerned and want to know if their child's been exposed? Sure, definitely talk to your pediatrician at the first year and second year well child visit and ask for a lead test. They're not automatically given, but if you're living in an older house, building that's built before 1978, that's definitely something that you're gonna wanna ask for. And then in that case, if your kid has higher high levels of lead, they'll, they'll get connected to the support and services. That's something that's, that's required for all kids who have high blood lead levels. So we've been talking a lot about childhood lead poisoning. What about adults? Is it, is it an issue if they get exposed? Yeah, definitely. And, and that's uh, another branch of the state health department. Yeah, definitely for kids, it's, a, it's kind of this developmental window. And so their, their brain is, is growing. And that's why we see a lot of later impacts uh, related to exposure at a young age. But that said, when adults get exposed to lead, it can be very damaging to, to their health as well. Um, so for, for those who are working in occupations that were, where they may come into contact with lead, so contractors or people who are working at like shooting ranges or any of these other places where there's lead, they definitely want to sh- follow like safe work practices and use personal protective equipment to avoid exposure to lead. And, and that's another thing to keep in mind is that those uh, occupations can, if, if, you, if you're working at a construction site and you're taking lead off, off, the, off, off a wall, 
um, that lead can kind of go home with you, and that can be a source of exposure for a kid as well. So that's that's something to keep in mind as well. I've been speaking with Daniel Santiago Madrigal. He is a health educator talking to us about the importance of childhood lead poisoning and all the work being done to support children who have been exposed and also limit exposure especially in those key developmental stages. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming in and chatting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Despierta Dulce amor de mi vida Despierta Si te encuentras dormido Escucha mi voz vibrar bajo tu ventana En esta canción te vengo a entregar el alma Perdona que interrumpa tu sueño listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, that's the voice of Diana Gameros. This is the song Despierta off of her upcoming release, Arrullo, comes out November 10th. We're going to listen to the rest of the song and we're very lucky to have Diana Gameros in studios with us to talk about her project. Stay tuned. Oye, 
Diana Rameros, that was Despierta off of Arrullo. It's coming out November 10th. We're all so excited and really happy to have you here to talk to us about it. Why don't you start off by talking to us about this incredible project that we've all been waiting for? Um, well, I got to record this album called Arrullo, which contains all Mexican songs that I learned as a child uh, growing up, going to my grandparents' farm in a little town called Torreoncitos in Chihuahua, Mexico. And I decided to record these songs because I've been playing them and listening to them for so long. I They also were part of the repertoire that I would play at the Roosevelt Tamale Parlor in the Mission in San Francisco. And so I really wanted to pay tribute to my roots, to my family traditions, and to all things Mexico, because these songs are just so dear to my heart and really bring me back to those times where, when I would sing these songs with my uncles and my abuelita, and would we would hear the, the chickens and the cows in the background and the kids dancing along to them. And so I just thought it was time for me to, to have this on a record and share it with the rest of the world. <laughs> Diana, your voice is really one that has kind of captivated everyone who's been listening to you and following you. You get a lot of people who become obsessed with your your sound after hearing you play. And a lot of that comes from the love. And I feel like people can hear how much you love these songs and you communicate a lot through your voice. So tell us about that process of how you took these songs that you grew up with and, and made them yours. Hmm. Yeah, good question. I I never thought that I would, you know, I guess sing these songs for a living, if you could say that, you know, because I did make a living of, of playing these songs. And the reason for that was because, you know, I always heard these songs being sung in a different voice, you know, in a more upfront and mariachi voice. And but when I started singing them, I, I realized that, you know, they were so dear to me that I, I try to leave those thoughts aside of that I needed to sing them in a certain way, you know, or else I didn't deserve to be singing them or I just I just sang them because, like you said, because of the love that was in me for them, for these songs. And so, you know, and I have more of a softer, mellower voice and and I just kind of wanted to stay true to to my voice and to to what I do musically. And I guess also with these particular songs that I chose for Arrullo, Arrullo means lullaby. And so I did want them to have sort of a dreamy and soft quality to them. It's a very maternal album. The cover is pink and it has my abuelita, my grandmother in it and a lot of feminine elements. And so I just thought it would be perfect to have it have that voice and and yeah, just kind of stay true and kind of have the listener be traveling in a little maternal field. (laughs) So speaking of your grandmother, you have an upcoming show that a lot of folks are really excited about, and your grandmother will be there along with your mom. So tell us about, you know, Todo Tu Familia and all the influence they've had and how this show is going to be just such a special event. Yes, speaking of feminine energy, this this concert is really a tribute to Mexico, to my family traditions, but also to women, the women of my life. Uh, my mother's going to be there. She's going to sing with me a few songs. I think we're going to do three songs together. And then maybe my grandma will sing. I She's never sang on stage, so I don't know. She has a beautiful, beautiful voice. I'm going to try to convince her. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And I'm also going to have other beautiful women join me on stage. I'm going to have the Magic Magic String Quartet, all composed of women, cellist, also playing one of my songs, uh, Patrick Wolf on clarinet. And I'm also, so just between me and your listeners, I'm also going to be playing piano. I actually majored in piano, and I'm finally, you know, just coming out (laughs) of the musical closet and just sort of going all for it. And so I'm going to be playing a few songs on a a grand piano that the Brava Theater was very kind to to offer. And yeah, and so this is going to be a beautiful concert of, you know, storytelling of my childhood in Mexico and 
and songs that I grew up with and the family's going to be there. So bring your kids to, I will love it if kids were there and if they start talking or whatever, perfect, because this is the environment I grew up in. And so if, if you bring your kids, it's going to make me so happy. It's going to be on the early side of things on November 12th. It's a Sunday and it starts at 7 p.m. So it's still early for you to go back home and put your kids to bed for school the next day. So I really, really hope to see the theater full, and I really do hope that you won't miss this. Diana, so why don't we hear another song that you'll be playing on that Sunday, the 12th? So off of Ajuyo, you also have another beautiful song called Dos Arbolitos. So why don't we hear that song?
We're here with Diana Gameros in studios talking about Arrullo, her latest CD and her upcoming show, which is on November 12th at the Brava Theater. Diana, we just heard Dos Arbolitos. Tell us about this song. Dos Arbolitos is a song that, uh, that talks about a man seeing two little trees outside his window or from his window, and he fantasizes that the two little trees are are lovers, and he feels nostalgia for his lost loved one, and he 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 wishes that he could have a lover like this other tree has. So it's a just kind of a beautiful song about, you know, just about nature. And I think a lot of these songs talk about trees and birds and, you know, using those metaphors. And I think it's because a lot of these songs were born out in the fields. And so that's something that this album has a lot of, just a lot of natural elements and all things fields and farms and so this one is really dear to me, and the whole family would sing it when we were in Torrencitos, and so it's it just brings back a lot of memories. So, Diana, along with your family playing with you and you playing the piano and special treats that people can't really get to hear too often, you also are going to have a lot of guests playing with you on the 12th. So tell us about who will be joining you on stage at your show at the Brava. Well, the most important guest for me at this time is uh, my mother, Alta Gracia. She's going to be joining me on three songs, uh, or maybe more. <laughs> and uh, the Magic Magic String Quartet, directed by Mina Choi. And uh, Patrick Wolf on clarinet and saxophone is also going to be playing. And I'm going to be playing piano, so it's kind of a new element that no one has really ever heard me play on a stage. So, Diana, do you want to share with us uh, another song off of Arrullo? Because Arrullo isn't officially out yet. It's coming out soon. What can they do now? Let's say they know they want it. What can they do? Yeah, you can actually pre-order it now. Uh, you can go to my website and, and pre-order it through there. Or you can get it at the concert as well and, you know, have it signed. I'll, I'm going to be signing CDs. And so either now at my website or at the show at the Brava, November 12th in San Francisco. So you said that you would play in studio a song for us. What were you going to play for us? Well, in advanced celebration of the Day of the Dead, I'm going to sing La Llorona. So for folks that don't know the story of La Llorona or maybe don't speak Spanish, what can you tell them about this song? Well, this uh, song comes from a legend of La Llorona, which is translated into a weeping weeping woman, which, you know, the legend says that the weeping woman was a ghost of a mother who had lost her children. And so she would go around town lamenting and, and weeping for them. Salías de templo un día. Ay, wow. <laughs> Otra vez, perdón. That's so weird. <laughs> Salías de templo un día. Cuando al pasar yo te vi. Salías del templo un día cuando al pasar yo te vi. Hermoso huipillas que la Virgen te creí. Hermoso
No sé qué tienen las flores, las flores del campo santo. No sé qué tienen las flores, llorona, las flores del campo santo. Que cuando las mueve el viento, llorona parece que están llorando. Que cuando That was the voice of Diana Gameros, and you all heard one of her songs that is off of Arrullo, which is coming out November 10th. You can pre-order it now. And that was La Llorona, which is perfect today. On October 31st, we have Dia de los Muertos around the corner. Um, so it's a beautiful song for right now. So Diana, a lot of people are going to be listening and fall in love with your voice if they haven't heard it already. So if they want to stay up on your news, see you play, pre-order your album, your latest album, how do they sign up for keeping up on your upcoming events and news? Yeah, everything is on my website. You can all go to dianagameros.com and see the fun adventures that I'm embarking on and but most importantly hopefully you can all be at my show my CD release concert at the Brava Theater in San Francisco on November 12th at 7 p.m. and you can find all the information at dianagameros.com and subscribe to my email list and join me on all the other uh, social media platforms yes it would be so lovely to be in touch with you Diana, for people who don't know, where is the Brava Theater? Brava Theater is on 24th Street in the Mission District in San Francisco. We look forward to hearing your music there and also be a part of that very special gathering. Muchísimas gracias, Diana, for coming in and sharing some of your songs and talking to us a little bit about the stories behind them. Gracias. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you want to listen to this program again, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles, and you can follow us there, and you can share our programs with a friend. You can also like us on Facebook to stay up on our news. If you have any show ideas or events you think we should cover, email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. That's lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros y buenas noches. Thank you.